We are, of course, continuing with our study of the book of Ephesians, and this week we will be looking at chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, so if you could please turn there now. At the start of this chapter, Paul has moved from information to application. He's been talking about what it means to be a Christian, but he wants us now to know that just being one isn't enough. We must also live like one. In covering verse 1, we spoke quite a bit about this in terms of the weight of our calling and how our day-to-day walk as Christians should honour and be in balance with that. And today we're going to be addressing the first way that we can be doing that practically, the matter and importance of unity. In fact, Paul considers this to be so vital that he carries on in the same vein until about verse 16 of this chapter. So we're going to be looking at various aspects of unity for a little while to come. Now before I carry on, I want to confess that I have been very painfully aware during the preparation of this sermon of the conviction that I can't speak about the subject as though I'm perfect in its execution. Many of you know that I am not, and and I acknowledge my many failings and its various elements. I pray that you will forgive me and that the Holy Spirit will help me to do better. Let's read then Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Although we come to this word unity later in our passage, it is the underlying fundamental to the whole. It's very important, so I want to spend some time discussing it before we look at the specifics of this text. God originally created humans for a life of harmony with him. We know from scripture that Adam and Eve initially had a very different life to ours. Can you imagine the privilege and ability of being able to speak directly with God and literally go for a walk with him? That must have been very special. Unfortunately, their sinful choices smashed that harmony to pieces and we were physically and spiritually separated from God, not just set at a distance, like we could see each other across the room, but completely and utterly divided across a gulf that we had no power at all to cross. Now, this is a lathe. I know that some of you are familiar with these and have or do use them regularly, and they've been around in some form or another for a very long time. The way they work is that you can clamp a piece of metal or wood in that spindle on the left-hand side there, and you support the other end on the tailstock, the back there, and then you can put a tool on the tool rest, or sometimes clamp it on the tool rest, and move the rest up and down, and by doing that, and using different speeds and different tools, you can make pretty much anything. In fact, I've heard it said that a lathe is the only tool that is capable of making itself. And technically that's correct, but practically, of course, it is not, because 
the lathe's ability to reproduce itself is absolutely dependent on its operator. Somebody who has a brain must select and load the material and decide what tools and processes will be used to create the desired part, or that lathe will just be a lump of useless metal. Now, without God, we are just like the lathe. We have a very great potential, but absolutely no way to realize it or repair the broken relationship. Now, the consequence of this break is more than mere separation or disunity, us sulking in one corner and God angry in the other, a state of discomfort that could go on permanently. We must be clear that God does not need us in any way to be complete. He is perfect and complete in himself, a holy trinity of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He needs nothing more than that. He enjoys perfect harmony and unity in himself eternally. So we won't just be sitting in our space, continuing to sin and watching God doing his thing over there. He will never tolerate that. It is an offence to his holiness. So there must be a consequence for sin, and that consequence for humans is hell. That is eternal separation from God, and that means never being able to enjoy anything he is. Love, joy, peace, the absence of suffering. On the contrary, hell represents the absolute opposite of all those things. Hatred, despair, turmoil, unending pain. It's winter now and most of us will have a fire of some kind or another. Next time you're you're enjoying the flames, just imagine sticking your arm in there and keeping it there forever. That's hell. That's what every human faces without God. That's what you face if you don't know his salvation. So if you hear this message today and you're not a believer, what is your choice going to be? What is that salvation? I've already pointed out that God does not need us. And we must never get confused and imagine that that makes him the ultimate in selfishness that he will remain in his own completeness and ignore our suffering. He could never do that because God is love. We are not abandoned by God despite the offence that we have caused him. With great grace and love, he reaches out to rescue us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and bring us back into union with him. How important is unity to God? This is how important unity is. Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Imagine for a moment that you are God with all his mighty power. You have only just made puny humans and already they disobey you. It would take the very tiniest of efforts to wipe them away and start again. 
But no. You love them so much that you set aside all that majesty, might and glory and become like one of them to restore the harmony that you originally intended. I don't know about you, but I I cannot think of any adequate way to describe that or to express my thanks for it. If we take a minute to think about that perfect unity of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, it isn't surprising that unity between God and man and between believer and believer should be so very high on his list of required behaviours. Paul knew this and this is why after spending three chapters talking about theological matters of unity, it is the very first piece of application that he draws out. I hope by now that we have grasped the message that harmony matters first. It is very important. We talk a great deal about not sinning and doing good works, but we don't think very often about the base on which they rest, which is of course unity. The reason for doing all the usual things we see as being good Christians is unity. Let's think about some examples. I shouldn't sin, right? Oh, thank you. The reason I shouldn't sin is because God told me not to. Well, that's a good reason by itself, but what's the bigger picture? It's this. If my aim is to bring unity with God who hates and abhors sin, then I will be avoiding it at all costs because it brings division between us. It hurts a relationship that crossed dearly to begin with and whose value is more than any amount of money on earth could buy. I know I must do the good works that God has prepared for me. Why? Well, let's just zip back to Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved by faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone for boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship. Will a lathe suddenly start making toothpaste? No. A lathe will only do the task it was made to do. And fortunately, we are a lathe with a choice. What God has made should do what he intended to do. Love makes love. Grace flows as grace. The workpiece in union with the workman. When we are saved, we were remade with potential for works of grace and love. Unfortunately, we still live with that conflict of our sinful flesh that only wants what is selfish. So we have this choice. Do we go for unity with our Lord and Maker, as we were made to do, or do we continue to do what feels good right now? In answer, a moment's thought shows that to choose unity, to do these works prepared for us is the only possible response to the great gift of grace that has brought us salvation. To act for unity, to cooperate with God in his promise to make me more like Christ, brings what? Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Compared with, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, 
drunkenness, revelries and the like. What should I choose? Surely, surely it is obvious I must choose unity with God. It is so much better. And at the human level, this is not just for me, but for all of those around me. Do you see the potential of one believer working in unity with God? Do you see what a whole church full of living stones might accomplish? And then, what could the entirety of Christ's church worldwide do if we all acted together? It's beyond imagination. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, multiplied millions of times over. What a goal. And where does it start? With one. With one, with you and me. What will we do? What will we start with today? Now that we recognize the importance of what we're reading, let's go on to look at the rest of what Paul has to say. I'm going to read the passage again. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The first enemy of unity is pride because it acts only for the self. No one who is seeking to boost their own importance is working for unity. One might ask then, why should we not be proud because we are unified? Well, this suggests that we are responsible for achieving this state and the truth is that we are not and we're going to see that in a little while in the text. Paul calls us to live as the opposite, with all lowliness. Not just some lowliness, but all. Now what is this word lowliness? It isn't one that we use very often. Hi Dave, how's your lowliness today? Oh, very lowly, thanks. I've never heard that. So what does it mean? Well, if we judged only by the length of the original Greek word, then we would see from that alone that it must be a very important word. And I'm not going to try to say it, because if I succeeded, then I might become too proud. We might think that living with lowliness, which literally means humility of mind, lowly thinking, or a humble attitude, is not a very attractive idea. Perhaps we might think that it means living like this fellow. Poor Eeyore. Poor Eeyore. Of course, Eeyore is famous for his gloominess. But a gloominess that has been put on like a shirt isn't what Paul means at all. What he's actually calling for is a realistic attitude, one that is informed by understanding the fact of what we are. If we enjoy certain benefits in life now compared to those who are unsaved, where did they come from? Not our own efforts for certain. In the beginning of verse 2, we were reminded of this. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also 
we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That's where we came from. So anything we are was not earned or merited, but made by God. Since this is so, we can have absolutely no grounds for thinking highly of ourselves or believing that we are any more special than the next man. Humility has been described as insight into one's own insignificance. It is the mindset of a person who is not conceited but who has a right attitude towards themselves. Humility before God and man is a virtue that every child of God needs to strive for. It's funny that this message isn't that inconsistent with what Western society today says is the right and normal way to behave. We shouldn't be boastful. It's very interesting because in Paul's day, this was an extremely radical and unwelcome idea. The Greeks in particular prided themselves on being better than other men and they considered it something to be proud of to acknowledge their superiority. Humility was seen to be a negative thing. So this Christian virtue was seen to be groveling and abject and thus held in considerable contempt. They saw humility as weak and cowardly, was acceptable only as the behavior of slaves. However, Jesus' example elevated this virtue to the, to the supreme place. And that's a belief that has actually persisted today and has spread wherever the gospel has gone. So the irony is that although a large proportion of our society today now wants nothing to do at all with God, the basis for what they believe to be the right way to behave still comes from Scripture. And it might be worth pointing this out next time somebody tells you that they are able to work out their own moral system. We are also instructed to walk with all gentleness. Now I was puzzled for a bit about the distinction between humility and gentleness because some definitions of gentleness or meekness, depending on the translation that you have, say that it describes the quality of not being overly impressed by one's sense of self-importance. That's not so different to humility, is it? But I think that humility is more an inward quality that enables the outward um, demonstration of gentleness. We can see gentleness in behaviour such as consideration for others and restraint and patience in the midst of difficult circumstances. It suggests having one's emotions under control and is the opposite of self-assertion, rudeness and harshness. We shouldn't misunderstand gentleness, though, as a weakness because Christ himself was clearly gentle. But we also know that he wasn't afraid of confrontation or even anger. And we know that he got right in the face of the Pharisees, didn't he? And he went into that temple and he cleared it out. The Greek philosopher Aristotle defined gentleness as the correct mean, which is the average, the middle place, between being too angry and never being angry at all. It is the quality of the man whose anger is so controlled that he is always he's always angry at the right time and never at the wrong time. It describes the man who is never angry at any personal wrong that he might receive, 
but who is capable of righteous anger when he sees others wrong? I think this is a really good example of how Jesus behaved, and thus one that we should copy. It's very popular to go with the don't mad, don't get mad, get even theory, but this is really a fancy way of glorifying revenge. The Christian's gentleness is the opposite, because it describes emotions that are under control, a character that submits to God's dealings without rebellion and to man's unkindness without retaliation. This sort of self-control is not normally found in people, but is the result of yielding to and resting on the control of the Holy Spirit. We will all do well to live gently. The third characteristic of a worthy walk is long-suffering patience. But I don't think that the word patience quite captures Paul's intention because long-suffering is a compound word. It's made up of two others, long and suffering, that echoes the same position in Greek, which literally could be translated as distant or far-off temper, passion or emotion. I think this is a very powerful picture. My temper and passions are not merely bottled up somewhere inside me by a mental dam waiting for that final straw to explode out in ugliness, but they are separated from me by distance. If I want to use them, well, I'm actually going to need to make an effort to go over there and fetch them. And hopefully on the way I'm going to think about whether I need to use them or not. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, this same word was used to translate a Hebrew phrase, meaning the same thing, which literally meant long of nose. (laughs) And I love this idea because it's such a clever opposite to the typically violent and rapid breathing of an angry person, isn't it? It's it's great. Long-suffering in action is an emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune. It expresses the capacity to be wronged and not retaliate. It is the ability not to lash out when others are thoughtless or insulting towards us. Long-suffering is the spirit that never gives up because it keeps going in all circumstances. How can we have this quality of long-suffering then? A rather pious individual once came up to a preacher and asked him to pray that he might have patience. I really don't have much patience, he said, trying to be humble as he said it. I wish you would pray for me. I'll pray for you right now, the preacher replied, so he began to pray. Lord, please send great tribulation into this brother's life. (laughs) The man who had asked for prayer put a hand out and touched the preacher on the arm, trying to stop his prayer. You can't have heard me right, he said. I didn't ask you to pray for tribulation. I asked you to pray that I would have patience. Oh, I heard what you said, the preacher answered. Haven't you read Romans 5? But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. It means that we acquire patience through the things that we suffer. I prayed, that God would send tribulations so that you would have patience. Now I'm not suggesting that we should avoid praying for patience. 
because it's something that all of us should want and probably need. Whether we want it or not, trouble will always come to us, as promised by Scripture. It is an an inevitable consequence of the fallen and sinful world, world that we live in. This passage in Romans 5, however, gives us great hope. There is meaning in suffering, no matter how savage or pointless it seems at the time. I don't want to belittle the very real anguish we may feel at times, but knowing that God will use this situation for good can be a reason worthy of clinging to, for keeping one's head up when the power of suffering wants only to drag it down. This is a great witness for our Lord who has suffered for us, understands suffering, and it gives glory to him. Long-suffering is also a very valuable and necessary quality for daily life because we rub up against other people so often, both those near and loved and those we may meet at the roundabout who don't know how to use their indicators properly. For many years, I worked for the oil company Castrol. Along the way, I learned how oil protected machines from damage. It's a little thing called hydrodynamic lubrication. Yes, there will be a test afterwards. Now, if we were to look at even the smoothest and most highly polished surfaces under a powerful magnifying lens, we would see that the surface is still very rough with peaks and troughs. Okay, now, if you're a bit confused about what we're looking at here, imagine that you've got two pieces of that smooth metal, okay, and you were looking at them side on like the edge of a sandwich. Okay, like I was saying, they're actually really rough. You can imagine what will happen if those two things are forced together aren't you? Okay, the, those peaks are going to catch on each other and they're just going to rip those surfaces to pieces and the machine will fail. Now, when we in, introduce oil between the surfaces, however, it actually pushes them apart. Okay, And those things don't touch anymore. And there's no damage. I'm sure you get the picture by now. Paul, <laughs> I'm guessing Paul had never heard about hydrodynamic lubrication. But he did know how the oil of long-suffering smooths out the interaction between people and how that smoothness and harmony promotes what we were speaking about earlier. Isn't it worth praying for with all our might and a golden product of trials? So far we have heard about being humble and gentle and long-suffering. In many circumstances, though, these are things that I can keep inside me. I can conceal my actions and I can control my responses. But that's not walking, is it? That's what we were called to do. We were called to walk. Walking is visible and purposeful and we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. This is why Paul amplifies his counsel to bear with us, to bear with one another in love. The word he uses for bearing means to hold oneself upright or firm against another person or thing. And the way that it is written indicates that this action is intended to be continuous. It's supposed to be a way of life. Once again, we have this powerful word picture. We might not like another person because they have hurt us or done something else that offends us. So our instinct is to push them away. But because of love, because of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we will stay 
close to them, deliberately hold hold ourselves against them in love. I've said before that our senses are relative, not absolute. And what I mean by that is that we don't have an internal ruler in our head. I can't look at something and say, oh, you know, that's, uh, you know, the length of the step is exactly, uh, 6,192.5 millimeters because my iometer tells me that. I can't tell that. I can only really tell that the bottom step is relatively longer than the next one up. Okay? That's what I mean by relative and absolute. But this, this ability to see whether things are larger or smaller than the other can still be useful. Is one bigger or smaller than the other? Is one in better shape? Which one should we use? Which one should we be like? When we bear with one another, we will be achieving so many things. Personal growth, comfort for the other. But the word picture also shows that we will be providing an example of Christian love to copy and a witness to the world of the same thing. Rejection has become a way of life for so many. It's become so casual that now we end relationships via text on a cell phone. What a worthy work then to hold fast to another person in love. That love in this case is agape. Unconditional, sacrificial and supernatural love. I said earlier that God is love. God is agape. This kind of love is described by Paul in that very well-known piece of scripture in 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek his own. Is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Do you see how that is consistent with what we have seen here today? As I read this list, it is difficult to imagine how such a love could ever remain hidden. Surely it would be visible and surely it would be never expressed without good effect on those around. Surely it would be a witness to the one it came from, God. That's all very well, you might be saying. It's all very clever for the Greeks to have these fancy names for love, agape and philae and so on. But where do I find them? Where is the rotary switch that I can use to turn them on and off? I think if we have even a a short look at the different kinds of love detailed in 1 Corinthians, it will be clear that humans on their own will never be very good at those kinds of love. But we have a helper. The Holy Spirit who places within us the potential to express agape love. To achieve that potential, Scripture tells us that we must day by day die to ourselves. Agape love is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is activated by a personal choice of our will and is not based on our feelings towards the object of our love, but is practically acted out 
by doing what we read in 1 Corinthians 13. The more we do it, the more we will be it, and the more we will show our unity. Dale Moody said there are two ways of being united. One is by being frozen together, and the other is by being melted together. What Christians need is to be united in brotherly love, and then they may expect to have power. This is why we must be, as verse 3 says, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now I'm going to move quite quickly now because we're running out of time and we've already spoken at some length about unity but there are some words here that are really worth talking about in this verse. First of all, endeavouring. Endeavouring is a strong word that has an element of haste and urgency, even a sense of crisis to it. It suggests a zealous concentration and diligent effort. It also infers acknowledging a difficulty but having a resolute determination to overcome it. Friends, this precious fruit of unity is not automatic. We cannot buy it from any store, but it takes a lot of effort to cultivate and propagate. Give maximum effort. Do your best, spare no effort, hurry on, be eager. There must be intensity of purpose followed by intensity of effort towards making that purpose come about. Secondly, keep. Now this word is derived from the word for God or warden. It means, means to keep an eye on, to keep something in view, to attend carefully or watch over it as you would some precious thing. Our unity truly is a precious thing. Not just to be observed. Oh look, there's some unity over there. Isn't that nice? It is a thing to wholeheartedly be part of, guarded and cherished. And the way it's written, it's written in the present tense. It calls for believers to continually guard it. Well, how do we practically guard the unity of the Spirit? Well, there are lots of ways, but Certainly one of the most divisive fellows is this little bloke here, the tongue. We must carefully watch our tongues because in many cases they have not just caused strife between individuals, but they have smashed whole churches to pieces. With current events in mind, I think this is a timely warning. Let's be wise about what we say to each other. Finally, this word unity. Let's try to sum up what we have heard. Unity is a state of oneness or being in harmony and accord. It doesn't describe an external union of just belonging to the same church or group or club and doing religious things, but it's internal. It's a spiritual unity that only comes through salvation with Christ. It means that Christians should be united in what they say and do and not be split up into factions or parties. The spirit in the body has created a basic unity that nothing can destroy, even though believers can still behave as though this is true. So Paul is pleading for zeal to guard the unity and to live at peace with one another. Unity is not uniformity. Unity comes from within and is a spiritual grace, while uniformity is a result of pressure from outside.
you will behave like this because I told you to. Ultimately, the unity and reconciliation that have been won through Christ's death are an essential part of God's intention of bringing all things together in Christ. If unity is so important to God, then it follows that it must be important to you and me. God intended the church, that's us, to be a visible example to the world of his plan and eternal intentions. Since unity is a fundamental of that church, it must also be visible. If the church is there, then we must see unity there too. If the unity of the Spirit is real, it must be transparently evident, and believers have a responsibility before God to make sure that that's how it is. To live in a way that hurts the unity of the Spirit makes a nonsense of the gracious reconciling work of Christ. As the world will see it, it's just the same as saying that his sacrificial death, by which Christians have relationships with God, and that unity has been restored, along with that resulting freedom of access to the Father, well, it's just nonsense. It isn't real to us. It's of no consequence to us. And that can't be right. I would not care to be guilty of that. By all means, I would like and love to see unity. Let us pray. Father, you have brought so many different people together in this building. And you've done the same all over the world. We all share the same circumstance. Lord, we were sinners and we were unworthy. You have rescued us. You have placed the Holy Spirit within us so we, that we stay the same but we are the same in a much more wonderful way. Lord, I pray that we would learn to set aside the things that divide us. That we would see beyond the small things of day-to-day life and instead recognize the very great things that you have brought us. Lord, I pray that we would be soft and open to what the Holy Spirit is telling us moment by moment about unity. And that because of that, we would be a great example and light for the world and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.